But I realized a long time ago that the heart and soul of American skiing really lives at these small to mid-size, authentic, independent, hidden gems that most people have never heard about. And in 2017, when Altera announced their their you know coming out party and started merging with everybody, you know we just saw everything was changing. It was like musical chairs, and we started thinking about you know if, okay if there's going to be a new pass, why why can't it be us? Why can't we do it? Welcome to the storm. I'm your host Stuart Winchester. How are you doing today? Talking one of my favorite topics today, multi-mountain passes. Before we get to that though, a reminder to please subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com to get all future podcasts and other content as soon as it's live. Episode 16, Doug Fish, president and founder of the Indy Pass. There are two kinds of skiers, graduators and explorers. Graduators think you learn at small mountains, work your way up to really big ones, and then forget about everything in between. This is your buddy who won't ski anything smaller than Sugarbush, or the guy you know at work who will only ski out west, even though he lives in New Jersey. Explorers are different. They believe that the quality of a mountain is not stapled to its size or how many high-speed lifts it has. There are lots of things that make a mountain worthy of spending a day at. Terrain atmosphere, cost, location. Explorers believe that some days Killington is the best thing in the world, but other days you want to downshift about 50 gears, not drive as far north, and hit magic. You're going to have a different kind of day, and that's a good thing. The Indy Pass is built for explorers, and it's built for people who are tired of expensive lift tickets. 199 bucks gets you two days each at 52 ski areas. There's seven new mountains this season, including Cannon in the east, Tamarack out west, and a bunch of headliners in the Midwest. There's a new Kids Pass this year for 99 bucks, and season pass holders at any Parker Mountain can tack on an Indy Pass for $129. Doug Fish, based out of Portland, Oregon, launched the pass last season. We're going to get the origin story today and talk about everything that's new with the pass. This is a long one, so we're going to get right into it. Let's do it. My guest today is the president and founder of the Indy Pass, which provides two days of skiing at 52 ski areas in the U.S. and Canada for $199. He is the producer and founder of Snowvana, a Northwest Get Stoked Festival for the snow sports industry and enthusiasts. He is also the chairman of Fish Marketing a branding and digital agency that specializes in lifestyle and outdoor recreation accounts and has been working with ski resorts of all sizes for more than 20 years. Doug Fish is my guest. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stu. It's great to be here. Doug, it's been a crazy few months for all of us with the full COVID-19 shutdown. Uh, Where have you been holed up and how have you been doing? You know, I've been, uh, for the most part, holed up in my house in Portland, Oregon, and uh, working out of my kitchen. I uh, moved my office home on uh, March 16th, and my wife and I are, are empty nesters, and uh, fortunately, uh, she hasn't killed me in my sleep yet. <laughs> so hanging in there. Yeah, I think that was around the same time that all of us went underground. March 12th, I believe, was my last day in the office. So 
Here we are surviving, though. Um, so let's talk about the Indy Pass. Big announcement last week, but uh, I want to go back to the beginning. You created the Indy Pass basically out of thin air. It's filling a huge vacuum left by the Icon and Epic Passes. How did the Indy Pass come to be? Well, you know, like anything in the in the ski business, uh, or you know, the only the main reason people get into the ski business is so they can get free lift tickets, and I thought this would be a great way to do that. Um, but I, I've skied all over the West. I've been really lucky to uh, to ski a lot of resorts um, from the Rockies West, and I learned a long time ago that. You know, I have nothing nothing to, bad to say about these mega resorts and these big, great resorts. You know, I love skiing them, and, and I've skied many of them. But I realized a long time ago that the heart and soul of American skiing really lives at these small to mid-size, authentic, independent, hidden gems that most people have never heard about. And in 2017, when Altera announced their their you know, coming out party and started merging with everybody. Um, my partner and I were sitting around thinking about, you know, what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, we decided that maybe there was room for a new, res- a new pass, uh, that would incorporate the resorts that were left out of the veil and Al- Altera roll-ups. And, you know, we were familiar with the mountain collective pass cause, uh, we'd been the agency of record for snow basin in Utah, which is on that pass. And uh, we have uh, clients uh, on the Powder Alliance, which is a reciprocal um, season pass program out here in the West, in the West. And you know, we just saw everything was changing. It was like musical chairs, and you know, we started thinking about, you know, if okay, if there's going to be a new pass, why why can't it be us? Why can't we do it? And that's really how it got started. So you and I met in person up at Catamount, which is about two hours north of New York City. Uh, But it's not a mountain that a lot of people know about in the way that they know about Hunter or Wyndham. And it's an Indy Pass mountain. It's a great little mountain. Thousand vertical feet, you know, really nice lift system uh, owned by the uh, Schaefer family, which also owns and was run Berkshire East for a long time. So when we were there sitting in the cafeteria that day, you gave me a little backstory. You said you were riding the chairlift at Red Lodge, Montana, uh, and the idea for the Indy Pass just hit you. So take us into your head at that moment. When was this, and how did the thought hit you? Yeah, so it was uh, February of 2018, and uh, we'd been doing some digital marketing for Red Lodge. So I was out there um, on it for a visit, you know, meet with the management team and check out the mountain. My daughter was going to school in Bozeman. And... I was out riding the mountain or skiing the mountain, you know, it's a nice sunny powder day and, and uh, President's Weekend, I was skiing fresh tracks there, it's incredible, and uh, so I'm riding the chairlift by myself and I I get on the chair with this couple and start chatting with them and they tell me they're from Minneapolis. And I said, wow, that's a that's a long ways ago. Yep, 16 hours, uh, you know, we, we drive it straight through and we come out here every President's Weekend and... You know, this is the the best the first best place we come to when we head west. And um, you know, they come out every year. They ski at Bridger, and and uh, maybe maybe they'll do a day at Red Big Sky. But they really like Red Lodge, and you know, they're telling me about this. And and I thought, wow, that's that's crazy. I said, you know, where do you ski back in the Midwest? 
And he said, oh, we don't ski in the Midwest. This is our only ski trip. This is it for the season. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, I've been, you know, marketing to skiers my whole career. And, you know, I've always been focused on the hardcores like myself. And I thought, wow, there's a, this is a market I never really knew existed. I look at these these people, and you know they got twenty year old gear. You know their skis are straight as an arrow and skinny as a pencil, and you know, uh, I, but they were passionate. They loved it, and they would describe themselves as skiers to anyone they met, right? But because of their circumstances, they only could get three or four days a year. So a little while later, I'm on the chair, and I meet a couple from Grand Rapids, and it's the exact same story. So I'm thinking, wow. I uh, I need to rethink what this is going on here in the ski business, and that's when I realized that there was this gap in the market, and um, that is, there's two gaps really, um, the industry, and I mean, you know, resorts and manufacturers and, you know, media, they've, they've always been focused on core skiers who do about, you know, 50% of all the skier visits. They buy season passes. They spend a lot of money. But nobody's really spending a lot of time focused on people like I'd met on the chairlift. And the other gap is that all the big resorts have this these huge marketing budgets, and they're controlling all the messaging. So the casual skier, as far as they know, there's only 50 resorts in all of North America because that's all they hear about. So... That's really what created the essence for the Indy Pass was that epiphany that hit me that day at Red Lodge. So I'll say, first of all, Doug, neither of those stories surprised me at all. I grew up in the Midwest, and if there was a road to the moon, those people would drive there. They will drive anywhere. Distance is no obstacle at all. Um, I, I grew up when I was, as soon as I could, I drove from Michigan to Colorado for a ski trip. So no surprise there. So this idea forms in your mind. It's just one of these brainstorms. So you told me you skied straight down to the GM's office and pitched the idea to him. What what happened next? Well, uh, I met with the GM for lunch. We sat at the bar and I had hamburgers. And uh, G- Jeff Schmidt was you know been the longtime GM there. He's been, been a ski guy all his life. And and uh, you know I told him my idea and. He thought it was great. He said, "Hey, that you know, a pass like that would would be perfect for them. You know, that that's our customer." He said, and uh, so that you know, that was that was a little bit of validation, and and I kind of you know left Red Lodge uh, with an idea that I I didn't arrive with. And, and what was his reaction to the whole pitch? He thought it was a viable model. He thought there was a market out there that would buy the Indy Pass. These, you know, casual, occasional skiers and riders who don't buy season passes. And he, he thought that uh, whether it was, you know, for travel and vacation or for, you know, their daily uh, dose of skiing, that there was a market for it. And I thought he was a pretty good, you know, had a pretty good opinion of, of the whole situation. So you had the concept, you had some validation from at least one mountain that you respected. So what did you do next? Did you throw yourself into this thing, start blitzing the independent mountains in your region? No, we really uh, took a step back and um, we spent the next several months doing a lot of research and, um, you know, really fine-tuning the program. We had a kernel of an idea, but, you know, I'm a marketing guy and, 
I know how to market things, but I didn't know how to, you know, create a path. We had to you know, figure out how to, how the back end would work. Um, you know, how to approach resorts. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things that we didn't know that, that we had to find, and and so we spent the summer doing that. And the, the further we got into it, the more validation we realized for the for the uh, concept. You know, there's 700 ski areas in North America, and like I said, the casual skier really only has exposure to maybe 50 or 75 resorts. You know, pretty much all the big ones. And it's because those guys have been dominating the the you know what I call the snow porn media for 50 years. You don't go to a, a Warren Miller movie and uh, see a you know a travel log about Red Lodge Montana, you know, mm-hmm. or Beaver Mountain Utah, or right. you know Pat's Peak New Hampshire. It's you you see the the you know the same big ones because they have the money to pay for that exposure. And, um, you know, the casual skier that we're, we're trying to reach, you know, they're not listening to this podcast. You know, they probably don't even know it exists. And, and that's fine. So we're after the skier, the rider that averages four days per season. And that's a statistic that we got from, from National Skier Association. The average season pass holder skis 10 days a year and the average non-pass holder skis four days per year and that's who we're targeting our mission is to tell the story of indie resorts and give that casual skier a great deal because right now they're they're paying through the nose for day tickets and you know they're leaving the sport in droves the number one reason that people lapse from skiing and riding is because it's too expensive and the number three reason that they leave the sport is because the gear is too expensive. Mm. <laughs> so clearly, there's a perception problem within the within the industry that the, the sport is too expensive. And I think it gets back to the fact that you know all the big resorts are dominating the media and dominating the messaging, and you know they're charging 150 or 200 bucks a, a ticket, and. That's what these people hear, and, and they decide, well, you know, I think I'm going to take up golf or tennis or, you know, I'm not going to be a skier because I can't afford it. And the Indy Pass and all of the great resorts that we represent are for them. As you, as these ideas were forming in your head and you were in on paper and, and with your partner, and then you go out and you're recruiting these mountains, how big of a part of your pitch was that marketing angle. Like, look, Vale has, you know, whatever seven, eight, nine figure marketing budget. Uh, you, you know, Mount Local don't. But if you're part of this, that is part of the package. Like you are going to be part of a pass that's going to have a national marketing angle to it. And anyone who goes to explore resorts in their region will automatically see you. How big of a part of of it was that, Doug, to your pitch? It's huge. It's a huge part of our, our pitch. You know, none of these guys, you know, I don't want to say none, but most of them, these these small resorts, they're, they're not going to get national media coverage. I mean, once in a while, they'll get picked up on a you know top five indie list or whatever. 
But for the most part, you know, they only have the resources to market to their local communities, their regional, maybe their regional, you know, markets. And the IndyPass um, has the ability to create a national brand, which we've done, you know. Uh, we've, we've managed to, you know, create a national presence in, in just a few short months. We launched on September 1st of last year. And we've had numerous articles written in snow sports media. We've made, you know, the Boston Globe. We've got a mention in the Wall Street Journal in February. And it's just the beginning. And, you know, we're not necessarily promoting individual resorts, although, you know, when we get down to a regional level, we do. But what we're promoting is the concept that these these Indies are just awesome places. You know, they're they're uh, affordable. They're uncrowded. They're welcoming and if you want to take a little, you know, weekend getaway and do a vacation, you can stay in some really cool places, you know, whether at the resort or, you know, in the near, in one of the nearby communities. And you can do all this, you know, for a fraction of what it costs to go to a big resort. And like you're going to Disneyland. I mean, these big resorts have become Disneyland with chairlifts. You know, I think that that authentic experience is just a lot of people want that. So they obviously like what they heard. You when you announced the Indy Pass last year to the wider world last March, you had ten commitments, uh, all of them out west. What told you, Doug, that you had enough momentum and enough buy-in to make this thing known to the world? Well, uh, I figured if we could get ten commitments from resorts that that you know didn't know me and never heard of you know, anything, I mean, you know, why couldn't we get 20? If we could get 20, why couldn't we get 40? And if we could get 40, why couldn't we get 80? So that's kind of the, that's what motivated us. The the, the very first uh, commitment we got was from Brundage Mountain in Idaho. Um, the GM there, his name is Ken Ryder. He's a really smart guy. He's a out-of-the-box thinker and, a, you know, a true pioneer, I think, in the ski business. And I'd known him from uh, when we both did work at Tamarack, and he went to the board with it, and they said, yeah, let's give it a shot. And so I leveraged his uh, commitment to everybody else. And, you know, I said, well, you know, this guy's in, so how about you? And then I'd, you know, get a couple more, and I'd say, well, they're they're all in, so how about you? And, you know, (laughs) that's how the ski business works. Oh, I know him. Yeah, we work together over here, and okay, if he thinks it's cool, then I'll take a look at it. And you know, it's a real tight-knit community, and um, nobody wants to go first in the ski business. You know, nobody wants to make a bad, a, a wrong move because everybody's going to hear about it. So, you know, that first commitment was key, and, you know, I, I, I took that, and I packed up my lab and my, my best ski buddy, and we rented a 27-foot trailer, and we headed out on a on a month-long journey around the West, we covered 6,300 miles. We visited 20 resorts in 26 days, and at the end of that trip, I had 10 commitments, and that's what launched it. So that initial announcement included that $199 price. That's a really aggressive price point. How did you arrive at that number, and what made you think it was enough to build a business off of? Well, uh, it's all math. Um it's just based on math. Uh, the average non-pass holder skis four days a year, and uh, we know that that uh, these resorts uh, are happy to get around forty to fifty bucks a, a visit. 
even if they're charging 60 or 70. And you divide 200 by 4, and that's 50 bucks. Uh, we take out 15% for overhead and marketing and, you know, software licensing and everything. And the rest goes back to the resorts. And, and uh, this year, they realized over $48 per visit. That doesn't seem completely out there to me because if you look at prices on Liftopia, for example, uh, CEO Evan Reese has also been on the Storm Skiing Podcast. And, and the way he broke it down, it's in order to reach more skiers, you know, the, the, the price that we think of as, as the price, um, the ski areas have long ago dispensed with being married to that as I must get this number, right? That, that's sort of a starting point for discussions. And this seems like a, 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 a different variation of that same sort of pricing model. It, it really is. If you look at the statistics that you can obtain from NSAA's uh, financial surveys that they do. The average ski resort in the U.S. gets about 50% of their rack rate for an average um, you know, ticket revenue. In other words, if you take all ticket revenue and pass revenue and divide by the total number of visits, it's about 50% of your, your highest ticket price, which we refer to as rack rate. So... If that's the benchmark, if 50% of rack rate is the benchmark, I figured, okay, if we can come in above that, and you know, hopefully not everybody shows up the day after Christmas, then uh, you know we've got a viable model. And uh, last year we came in at 67% of uh, average rack rate. Yeah, the, the the disparity there is not as big as what I see on a personal basis with, for example, the Icon Pass, where. When I was out at Steamboat, a day ticket was going for $219, and I paid 600 something for my Icon Pass. And I think before the season was up, I might have gotten that down to 30 bucks a day. So, so they were getting from me, you know, a, a small fraction of what they were charging. And I and I understand I ski more than most people, but uh, but that sounds like it's working out pretty well for the partner resorts. Uh, how, curious how you arrived at that two day number. Again, just math, you know, averaging the number of visits that people want to, uh, are going to ski. And uh, if you figure it's four days, then, you know, if you can offer them uh, two days at two different resorts, that's four days. And if they can get to those two resorts and have fun and sleep in their own bed, they get their money back and make a little bit of money. And if you went to three days, then uh, now they can get six days. Uh, for 200 bucks and sleep in their own bed. And maybe if they stretch it and they want to drive three hours each way, they could get eight or no nine days. And at that point, you're going to start to cannibalize season passes. Because right. the average pass holder skis 10 days. And, you know, the average season passes, let's say it's 600 bucks or you know, between five and 600 bucks for a small to mid sized resort. And, you know, if you could ski nine days for 200, you're not going to buy a pass. And if that happens, then we're out of business. Right. So nobody, nobody's going to want to touch it. So <laughs> two days is really, really key. And, um, you know, it's not a season pass. Uh, you can't look at it as a season pass replacement because those people, they want to get their days in. You know, they're skiing 10, 15, 20 days, most of it at their favorite mountain. And if they buy the Indy Pass, uh, they're going to have to do a lot of travel to get that kind of volume in. And uh, people just aren't willing to do that. So, you know, that was part of a, a big part of our 
the perception issue. Everybody thought it was a season pass or it was going to replace season passes. It's it's nothing of the kind. It's it's basically it's like a you know it's like a, a frequency pass, like a four pack that they sell for one eighty nine. You know, in a lot of places, you get four days. That's the category that the Indy Pass is in. It's called the frequency pass. By having that two days, it kind of gets people to try it out, right? So, so there's a mountain I tried out last year up in uh, upstate New York, Greek Peak, which I just had never really thought about before. But it was on the pass. I was passing through there. I said, I'll stop in. And you know what? It was really nice. And so that kind of gets it in my head. Okay, here's this nice mountain that's not that far from me that I could come back to. It'd be a good family mountain to bring my kids back to. Uh, let me try it out. So looking at it from that frame of mind, it, it's it's one of these things where you really don't have anything to lose. Yeah, it, it's a sampler. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it really is. It gives you an opportunity to sample. If you're just starting in the sport, you can, you can check out a lot of places and decide which one you like the best. Um, you know, uh, we're hearing from a lot of our pass holders. Uh, I heard from this one woman, uh, and this is this is a quote. She said, "I grew up skiing small, independent areas, and there's definitely still a place for them in the industry." This pass encouraged me to revisit some old favorites. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Pat, Pat Peak was really worried about cannibalization of their their daily lift ticket, which is you know top price. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they surveyed every single Indy Pass visitor all season long, mm-hmm. and they asked them one question. They said, "Have you ever been to Pat's Peak before?" And the uh, results were shocking. Eighty-nine percent of those Indy Pass visits had never been to Pat's Peak before. Wow. Yeah. So when they saw that, <laughs> Chris. Blombeck, the uh, GM, when he saw that stat, he was like, whoa, this is incredible, <laughs> you know. And because they can market to those people now. They get their contact information, and they can reach out to them, which they did, and say, hey, you know, uh, thanks for coming and checking out Pat's Peak. Why don't you come back and try us again? Why don't you, you know, maybe buy a 10-time or a season pass? Or, you know, they become part of the uh, their their um, their database, and, and they can – they can convert them to regular customers. Yeah, it's so easy to overlook mountains out here in the Northeast because we just have so many and the big names are so well known and that's where everyone goes. Uh, so that doesn't surprise me one bit that people are like, okay, it's on the pass, let me try it. I want to talk a little bit about these coalitions of independent mountains like the Powder Alliance and the Freedom Pass in which ski areas have banded together to offer comp tickets to one another's pass holders. You've told me you think this is a bad deal for ski areas. Why is the Indy Pass a better way to go? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a bad deal, but uh, it's it's evolving into not as good of a deal as it was originally intended. And it's a great deal for pass holders. And, and what we're talking about is reciprocal agreements or affiliate uh, partnerships uh, between different resorts for their pass holders, for their season pass holders. In other words, you buy a season pass at at at, at this resort, and you get two or three days for free or a discount at you know several other resorts. And it's 
most of them are just handshake deals between resorts, and there are a couple of you know formal branded partnerships, like you mentioned, the Freedom Pass and the Powder Alliance. But you know, I think it was when Epic came out with or when Vail came out with the Epic Pass, this was the indie resort's answer to the multi-mountain passes that were obviously very popular. And uh, so they started forming alliances with each other, and they, you know, it helps them sell season passes. And now most resorts in the country have some form of reciprocity with, with other resorts. And in my opinion, I think they've kind of created a monster because, you know, Vail and Altera, they're not giving away any free days. You know, you may think they're free, but no, you you spent six, seven, eight hundred bucks for that pass, and you're going to one of their their mountains, and and that mountain's going to get paid for your visit in some form. But now all these other resorts, these independents, are literally giving away hundreds of thousands of free visits to pass holders from their partner resorts. I mean, let's face it, the ski business is tough. And it's getting tougher, especially for the smaller resorts. Margins are thin. You're reliant on weather. Uh, global warming is here. You know, competition is fierce. And for the last 20 years, uh, participation levels in the United States are flat. So the sport isn't really growing, okay? So it's getting harder and harder to maintain or increase your, your piece of the pie. I mean, how, how much longer can these guys afford to give it away for free? And, and that's what they're doing. And so, you know, with the Indy Pass, or, you know, maybe there's another another pass that does the same thing, but basically it monetizes all of those visits. Our partner resorts can sell an Indy Pass to their pass holders, or they can buy it directly from us for $129. And now they've got access to, well, today it's 52 resorts. Eventually it's going to be more, and they get two days at each one. Um, but instead of those visits being free, now they're monetized. And, you know, we're, we're paying out last year, like I said, we paid out almost $49 per visit. So I really think that the days of the reciprocal agreements um, are going to go the way of the straight ski and eventually some other model like the Indy Pass is going to is going to take its place and it, it it'll be more fair uh people who want it can pay for it people who don't you know they don't have to but uh that's my thoughts about uh reciprocal agreements so fast forwarding to the 2019 to 20 ski season you you spent a lot of time putting together this coalition the time to pass went on sale in September of last year. You had 40-something mountains signed on, and you kept adding others all the way up through the beginning of the ski season. Uh, what was the initial reception like among skiers? It was great. Um, you know, it, it was. it's hard to get the message out, you know, to especially to the casual uh, person. But uh, Ski Magazine came out with a great article about it. On uh, August 27th, I'll always remember the date. We went on sale a couple of days later, and I remember getting up the the first morning, opening up my laptop, and and uh, you know nervously looking to see if we sold any passes. And <laughs> you know we sold about a dozen passes that first day, and, and you know I think they could hear me yelling all the way to Bend. It was validation, you know, and these were not friends and family; they, these were strangers 
that were buying the pass because they'd heard about it. And again, if we can sell one, we can sell 10. If we can sell 10, we can sell 100 and so forth. Last November, we went out to the Boston uh, Ski Show. It's the biggest ski show in the country. And we set up a, a booth and, you know, we hung out. We we're next to Magic Mountain and across the aisle from Bolton Valley. And we just talked to people. You know, we weren't trying to sell passes. We were, you know, giving away a little discount coupon. But we were just talking to people. And we met with hundreds and hundreds of, of skiers and riders from from uh, the Boston area who stopped by and told us what they thought. You know, we explained it to them. And then, you know, some people were like, yeah, this is great. This is cool. I'll buy one. And others like, I got my Epic. I'm, I'm good to go. But it gave us feedback that, you know, was real helpful, especially there in, in the Northeast. We're not as familiar with that region as we, we need to be. And, and so that was, that was one way we got some good customer feedback that uh, has been very valuable to us. So what ended up being your strongest markets, both as far as sales go and as far as actual usage? You know, um, I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, uh, Washington State was just huge for us. Uh, we sold 30% of our passes in Washington. Wow. The Puget Sound region, Seattle was, you know, probably two-thirds of that, and the Spokane area was huge. And uh, then uh, Minnesota was number two at about 8%. Hmm. And then Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts were all kind of grouped together in third place, approximately. So pretty good diversification across the U.S. But man, if we can just duplicate what we're doing in, in you know, the offering in Washington, then we're going to sell a lot of passes because they just ate it up. Yeah, it seems like from what you just described that those geographies cluster rather well around where you have a sort of critical mass of ski areas. Uh, you told Ski Magazine that you hit around 9,000 skier days last year. Taking out that chunk, that month or six weeks or whatever you want to call it, that we lost to COVID, was that about in line with what you've been expecting? You know, we want, we, the first year we wanted to do, do more, but we had no idea what to expect. And, you know, as the season progressed, we, we thought we would get to 10,000. So I think uh, we would have hit that number or come close uh, had it not been for the pandemic. Anyone max it out? Anyone get all 94 days? <laughs> no. Uh, if somebody maxes it out, I will give them a free pass for life. <laughs> oh, nobody will, nobody will ever do that. <laughs> it doesn't want to happen. And if they, if they do it, they deserve everything that they, they, you know, I'll give them a free pass for life. Um, no, there was three people who skied 16 days on the pass. The, those you were know, our, I... our champions. I think Eagle Crest is going to be the tough one. You can't even drive there. Well, Sunrise, Arizona, you know, is a bit of a, a, a haul too. The romance of taking a ski trip and hitting 25 ski resorts is really cool. I mean, it sounds great, but I did it, and it is a brutal road trip to do that. And you got to have a lot of time, you got to have a lot of money, and you got to have a lot of stamina. And, you know, there's people that have that, but everyone dreams of that. Everyone aspires to that, to taking that trip where you visit, you know, a dozen ski resorts and you travel all over. And it is an, an incredible experience. I've, I've done it now, you know, in all parts of the country. 
But it, you really have to be committed, that's for sure. And I think it's the allure of that type of lifestyle. That's why people buy these multi-mountain passes. They see themselves doing that. I know you do it, Stu. I've read your your posts, and you walk the walk and you talk the talk. But that's what that's what people envision when they buy one of these passes in October. There's no more optimistic person than a skier in October. <laughs> Well, I I can tell you, Doug, I will not be hitting 104 ski days next season. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Free pass for life if you do. (laughs) Uh, So the skiers really loved it. How did this work out for the ski areas? I know you touched on the comparison of rack rate earlier, uh, but but how how do you manage the fact that some ski areas have day tickets? Like you said, Pat's Peak, I, I think I looked and their day ticket was in the 90s for a peak Saturday ticket or whatever. Um, so, so you know, you compare that to someplace like Catamount where you can walk up for 50 bucks. Does everyone get the same payout? Is there some kind of sliding scale based upon your pricing grid? How do you work all that out? Um, well, that, that's a really good question. Um, last year, to keep it simple, we just took total, total revenue divided by total number of visits, and that was what we paid out, and it came out to 48 to 68 um, but we had, you know, some resorts in the, in the Midwest that, you know, their highest ticket price is like in the low 40s, and here they're getting a check for $48 every time somebody shows up. I mean, they, they hit the jackpot, right? But then, right. you know, some of our Rocky Mountain resorts, they're charging 85 bucks, and, you know, Bolton Valley's at 84 bucks, And, um, you know, we just didn't think that was fair. So uh, for for this coming season, we're going to – as you say, a sliding scale, and it'll be pegged to rack rate. So, you know, we have a mathematical formula that, you know, I suppose it's high school algebra, but I couldn't figure it out. We had to hire somebody to write it. And we think we'll be able to deliver somewhere between 60 and 65% of that rack rate. So if you, you know, if you're at 100 bucks, you're going to make 60, and if you're at 40, you're going to make 24 and we think that's a more equitable situation. And, you know, we took this to all of our partners and we said, hey, what do you think of this idea? You're going to make a little less. You're going to make a little more. Are you okay with that? And everybody uh, was. And, you know, 95% of our resorts are returning and have renewed their contracts for next year. And it just speaks volumes about, you know, what this has done for them. And is there further differentiation in there if, if you're skiing on, say, you know, MLK Saturday or or President's Day Saturday as opposed to some random Monday or Tuesday in March? Or or is it just it's a daily rate based on your resort period and there's no other considerations? No other considerations. You know, what we found was interesting, thirty five percent of our visits were midweek. So those are you know, coveted. Every resort wants more visits during midweek, and uh, we we deliver that. If you dig a little bit deeper, 57% of all of our visits were non-peak. You know, if you consider Christmas and then the weekends between MLK and Presidents, those are your peak ski weekends pretty much, you know, universally. You take those out and 57% of our visits came on a a day other than that. So, you know, again, you know, the industry has a problem with overcrowding on those peak days. You see about it, these pictures that go viral of the big resorts that have these immense lines on powder days that happen to fall on a peak weekend. And there's a very simple solution to this overcrowding issue, and it's been around for uh, about 350 years, and it's called supply and demand. If you have too much demand, you raise the price. 
and uh, Epic and the Icon keep tweaking the, the formula, but it's an incredible deal. You know, for six ninety nine, you, you get basically unlimited skiing at all these resorts. And you know, in order for them to dial that back, they would have to raise you know, the price to where people probably wouldn't buy it. So I want to get into your announcement from last week. You announced your twenty twenty to twenty one pass suite. Looks like you're sticking with the $199 base price, uh, even though you've added a bunch more mountains. Is this a nod to the economic reality of the moment, or is $199 just the price that works for this pass? We created that price with the consumer in mind. And I think we have a pretty good handle on who our consumer is. And they're used to buying a day ticket, you know, for anywhere from 40 to 100 bucks or 200 bucks. And no, nobody has a, a pass priced as low as 199 so, you know, it stands out. And, you know, it's, it's accessible. And financially, it works for our partners. I mean, if we find that redemptions go, you know, the whole model is based on four days of redemption. And, and, you know, if we find that that, on average, goes way above four, then we... You know, we'll have to raise the price, but right now we want to keep it as low as possible and get as many passes in people's hands as we can. So you had a lot of other parts of that announcement. $99 Kids Pass is one that I think a lot of people will be really excited about. That is an amazing price, and it fills an important gap. What told you the Indy Pass needed a kids option? Well, it was interesting. Uh, we didn't have a kids option last year, and, and in fact, we we started out uh, not selling passes to anyone under under 13 because you could buy a day ticket and get 25% off if you were 12 and under. But, I mean, parents were calling us all, every day saying, hey, I want to buy one for my kid. How come I can't? I said, oh, okay, well, we'll take away the age restriction. And, you know, 5% of our pass holders were under the age of 13 by the time wow. it was all done. Another 5% were teenagers. So there's definitely a market for it. And I think, you know, by lowering the price, um uh, as as we should, because you know, kids' tickets are generally forty percent cheaper than adults. I think we're going to sell a lot of them, and you know, that product was created by the consumer. They told us that they wanted it. Another big add-on was the hundred twenty-nine dollars season pass add-on. I believe this was available on a limited number of Partner Mountains last year, but this season you're making it universal. Anyone with a season pass to any of your partner resorts can tack on an Indy Pass for one hundred twenty-nine bucks. Uh, how did you get everyone on board with this, and why was it important to do that? We believe that the more value we can give to our resort partners, the better off we'll be. And if we can give a break to their season pass holders, you know, that's value to them. That's That gives them value for being a part of the program. And there were, um, I think, seven or eight resorts last year that sold it directly to their to their pass holders, and it was at 159 last year, so we've lowered the price. And we were able to track those redemptions, and what we found was, what we expected is that if you have a season pass to your home mountain, and you're going to get your the bulk of your days there, if you buy an Indy Pass, you're only going to be able to use it so much. And so the average number of redemptions for an add-on pass is lower than a, a regular Indy Pass. So... You know, we're able to lower the price and still pay out a solid yield to our partners for each visit. And that's really, everything is determined by that 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 per visit yield. 
And again, if we, if we find that that the add-on passes get used more than we expect, then you know that price will probably go up. We're also making that pass available to employees. In other words, if you are an employee at one of our partner resorts and you get a free season pass, then you can buy the add-on for 129. Oh, nice. So they actually buy that through you though, right? So when they, like if I go buy a season pass at Berkshire East Catamount, which share a pass, I would then have to go to Indy on September 1st and buy my add-on there. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, you'll, there'll be a mechanism where you can upload your proof of purchase for your season pass and then we'll activate your pass. So you also added a plus pass. This is a $299 option. It avoids blackouts, but as of now, according to your press release, only three mountains all out west are even planning to have blackouts. So this is really for a very specific audience that plans to visit those mountains on busier periods, right? Yeah, and and I think you know this is a very unique year with with the pandemic, and and honestly, a lot of resorts aren't sure if they're going to do blackouts or not. I think they're waiting to get a feel for how their pass sales go and how their lodging bookings look, and just a number of factors. And you know, we're letting them wait as long as they want, or well, as long as we can uh, to make that decision. But yeah, it's, it's it's for someone who wants to be able to go anywhere and ski any day and not worry about blackouts. But it's also for, you know, our, our goal is to attract some bigger, more high-profile resorts. And uh, these are resorts that are, you know, charging over 100 bucks or 90 to $120 a, a ticket. And, you know, 60% of rack rate is probably not enough to get them excited uh, for a yield on a peak day. And, you know, those are the resorts that are selling out on those peak days. So we created this pass, and what it allows us to do is that if you want to black out your peak days, if you're worried about your yield on those days, now we take that extra $100 that we um, sell the pass for and we apply it just to those blackout days to those resorts. And now our yield goes up to between 75 and 80%. And, you know, that's a pretty good yield, even, even for a holiday weekend at a big resort. So another big part of that announcement was a pass assurance plan. Uh, it's really pretty simple, and it and it doesn't. It, we've seen this a lot with season passes, right? Because every skiers are basically demanding, "Hey, what's going to happen if the mountains shut down again? If we don't have a season? Uh, if this COVID thing keeps messing with our ski life? You know, what are you going to do about it?" So I thought it was interesting. You actually just decoupled it from that altogether, and your pass assurance just bases the it applies a credit to the following year, depending on how many days you ski, period. doesn't matter if mountains shut down and if you get injured, nothing else. So if you ski zero days, you get an 80% credit toward a 21 to 22 Indy Pass. Ski one day, you get a 60% credit. Two days, 40%. Three days, 20%. Take us into your thinking here, Doug. Why did this structure make sense to you for the Indy Pass? Well, one, it's simple. You just explained the whole thing in in about 30 (laughs) seconds. Which is, right. I think, really important. And and two, we we can do it because of our technology. You know, we have a great technology partner in Intubeni Systems. They're based out of Granby, Colorado, and Nelson, British Columbia. And you know, they're a ski company that is way into technology. And we can track every single visit by every single pass holder. And so we know if, you know, you only got one day on your pass and you're probably not going to be very happy about that. So rather than, you know, wait for the flood of 
emails and phone calls from people that say I went here and they were you know they were capped out because of the pandemic and we we weren't allowed to ski I want my money back and you know we're just going to say hey this is what you're signing on for we understand that there's going to be challenges this year and we're willing to work with you and uh we hope that everybody gets their four days in and if you get four days well then you know that's a that's a pretty good deal but if you didn't then we're going to just automatically issue a credit to your account and when you go to buy next year you'll you'll be able to uh apply that credit to next year's pass all right, so let's get into your new partners. Um, but but first, I want to discuss the specific challenges of the off season and this upcoming season. So most mountains, at least most folks that I'm talking to, and most things that I'm reading, they're planning for various scenarios around the 2020 to 21 season, including the possibility of having to operate at severely reduced capacity. So I have to imagine that that fact has caused some potential partners to hesitate. And in fact, when I had Mad River Glen General Manager Matt Lillard on the show a couple of weeks ago, he said, I really like the Indy Pass. We love what they're doing. We want to support that part of the business, but we can't commit to bringing more skiers onto the mountain right now until we know how many skiers we can have. Are you seeing a lot of this as you negotiate with potential new partners that they're worried about capacity issues and, and Indy Pass contributing to that? Yes, uh, we are hearing that from a lot of people. Um, in some cases, it's it's uh, contributing to their decision not to join the program, and in other cases, they're they're joining anyway, and they're going to figure out a way to deal with it. But it's definitely a factor, and because it's not even June yet, we don't know what it's going to look like. But certainly, uh, some states are going to be faced with restricted capacities, at the very least, you know, in the lodges and the restaurants and the rentals facilities and the lessons. And there's going to be some caps put on that. And and whether or not that impacts a, a ski resort is going to depend on, you know, how busy they are anyway. You know, a lot of places they can do social distancing every day of the season and it's not a problem. But, you know, some of these resorts on a Saturday are going to are going to have have some issues. Our pass holders are are like anybody else, you know, they probably fall into the day ticket category and if they have to make a reservation and you know that's what they'll have to do if they have to get there earlier if it's a first come first serve model then that's what they'll have to do and we can inform our pass holders you know what the what the rules are at different resorts in their region and you know i think it's going to be a challenge for the industry to keep people informed because there's going to be a lot of upset people that show up and you know aren't able to ski yeah, a lot of mountains, at least in the springtime, they managed to reopen. Well, they were all moving to some kind of reservation system, including Arapaho Basin, which reopened this week. Uh, but nonetheless, despite those challenges, you signed seven new mountains. I'm really excited about these. I want to start here in the east, where the podcast is based and focused. So you signed Canon. That is an absolutely huge sign. It's a big scare by Eastern standards. It's a real skier's mountain. It is pretty much universally loved. It's probably the highest profile mountain you now have in the region. How big is Cannon for the Indy Pass in the east? Cannon is huge for us. It's a real feather in our cap. We're very proud to have Cannon Mountain on on the program. And we've heard from scores of people back east that are just thrilled. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people have said, that's it. That's all I needed. I'm in. (laughs) And so we're just thrilled 
to have those guys on board. I skied there uh, in February, and I was blown away. You know, I just thought the mountain was incredible. Um, the facilities are are really nice. The mountain is is immense by Eastern standards. It's just got such a great history and and legacy. Um, we're really pleased. So Canada's huge for the East. Uh, I'm also pretty excited about the Midwestern mountains you signed. You have some real headliners there. In fact, you signed the largest and most high-profile mountains, both in Minnesota and in Wisconsin. You have Lutzen in Minnesota and Granite Peak, Wisconsin. I believe they share ownership. And both of these were Max Pass mountains, but were left out of the Icon Pass party. Talk about how these partnerships came together and why the Indy Pass was the right place for these mountains. Yeah. Well, uh, you're right. They have shared ownership. Charles Skinner and his brother own Lutzen and Charles owns Granite Peak in uh, Wisconsin. And I first met with him last spring at the NSAA convention and we stayed in touch. And then in December, I took a trip out there and skied a bunch of the mountains that we had and stopped in at Granite Peak and skied there. Great hill, definitely big by Midwest standards, and numerous detachable quads and a great lodge. And I met with Charles. We had lunch there, and you know we talked about the new pricing model that we were kicking around, and he actually contributed some really good ideas to that. And you know we just stayed in touch, and you know he likes what we're doing. He is one of the best independent operators in the country, I think. And uh, we're just super stoked to have both his mountains on the pass. Luton is, uh, I'm told by people in the Midwest, that it is the nicest resort in the Midwest. And Granite Peak is definitely uh, the biggest thing going in Wisconsin. So we're really happy about that. Interesting that you say that Minnesota was one of your largest markets before you signed the biggest mountain in the state. I have to think that that's going to make that thing take off there. So that's a big deal two states over in Michigan, you signed Crystal Mountain. So that means that you now have half of the Lower Peninsula of Michigan's. So Lower Peninsula of Michigan has six really built up sort of ski resorts, as you were from. They have a lot of mountains, a lot of littler hills. You also have partnerships in the Lower Peninsula with Caber Fay and Shanty Creek. Crystal's right up the road from Caber Fay, and they're pretty intense competitors. How did you sell Crystal on the Indy Pass? Well, uh, I went there. <laughs> Uh, it, it was one of the last places I skied before the country shut down. I was there um, the second week in March this year, and mm -hmm. I, you know, drove up uh, Highway 131, which goes past everybody. And I met with the management team, the leadership team at uh, Crystal Mountain, and shared our vision for uh, the Midwest. And they liked it. They want to draw more people from Chicago, as does Granite Peak. And now we've got a pretty good story to tell in Chicago. You can head over to Granite Peak or you can drive up the other side of the lake and, and hit three great resorts in Michigan. And that's what it's all about. That's the, the value that we try to create for the pass holders. You know, it's that density that we have in Washington State that gets people excited. And now we have that to a much greater degree in the Great Lakes region. Yeah, I, I mean, that... That addition of Crystal really makes it a no-brainer in the Lower Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, so of the three other large Lower Peninsula ski areas, Boyne owns two, Boyne Mountain and Boyne Highlands. Both of those, of course, are Icon Pass partners. So that leaves Nubs Knob as a free agent. That is a really beloved ski area in Michigan. Uh, any chance we see them on the Indy Pass? Because that would really knock it out of the park. <laughs> Uh, it was the last place I skied uh, this year, and ah. I, I 
I can see why it's beloved. I'd heard the stories and I was really impressed. I had a great day there. I, I missed my flight because I, I stayed too long at Dump's Knob. <laughs> Uh, but as a matter of fact, I got an email this morning from the GM, and you know he just checked in with me and said congratulations on the announcement of the new resorts. And you know he said once we get through all this COVID uh, craziness, uh, they're going to take a real close look at it. So I'm hopeful that in uh, 21, 22, Nubs Knob will will give us the fourth piece of, piece of the puzzle that we're looking for in Michigan. It'll be a great addition. Uh, Wes, you added Tamarack as your headliner. Just a huge ski area and one that's had a rough infancy, but seems to finally be evolving in the right direction. Uh, how big is that Tamarack signing for you? It's it's very big. I've had a long history with Tamarack. They were a client of mine for many years until the economy imploded in, in 09, 08. And, uh, you know, between them and Brundage, uh, now we have a really great story to tell in Boise. You know, both those resorts are, you know, about 90 miles uh, from Boise. And now you can get four days at two incredible resorts for 200 bucks. And I think that uh, we're going to sell some passes there. You also have silver in Idaho, which I was checking out because it's on that pass. That looks like a pretty awesome ski area, too. You know, Tamarack, Brundage, Silver, these are mountains that if you don't live in Pacific Northwest or Upper Rockies, you probably aren't really aware of them. But these are, are pretty big mountains with a lot of snowfall. Uh, sell us on this, Doug. Why why should uh, a road trip to Idaho maybe be our next consideration if we do pick up an Indy Pass? I, I can guarantee you'll have, you know, one of the best ski trips of, of your life. Uh, you can fly into Boise and head head north, or you can fly into Spokane and, and head south. But uh, all three mountains are just amazing. They have great northern Rocky Mountain snow. Uh, in fact, Brundage, they uh, tout themselves as having the best snow in Idaho, and I think it's arguably true. Uh, they get, you know, lots of dumps. They have a cat operation there. And they have the very charming town of McCall, eight miles away. It's It uh, wraps around Lake Payette. Just a beautiful, beautiful alpine setting. You know, a few miles down the road is Tamarack, which is a newer resort. Uh, they're f- uh, finishing their village uh, this summer. And it's got an incredible mountain, all uh, detachable quads, 2,800 vertical feet, and again, you know, some fantastic snow. And then a couple hours north, uh, just off of Lake Coeur d'Alene, is Silver Mountain. And Silver has a, a, this awesome village with a water park and the longest gondola in North America. You get on at the bottom and it takes you up to the top. And you ski wow. at the top, and then you ride down, and some unbelievable terrain. I mean, they've got some legit black diamond tree and glade skiing that is as good as anything, I think. So there's, you know, three resorts, six days, and, and you could do that trip uh, for uh, half the cost of what it would cost you to stay at a village at one of these mega resorts, if not less. And I think the experience would be better. Yeah, and you can slide right across the border, too, and ski another one of your new partners, Sasquatch. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't know BC skiing at all. Tell us about Sasquatch. Sasquatch is a great little hill. We, we have we have two kinds of mountains on the Indy Pass. We have day areas, day ski areas that, you know, serve their local communities for the most part. And then we have uh, destination resorts that uh, do both, like the three I just mentioned, are all legit destination mountains. Sasquatch is a day area. 
It is between Vancouver, B.C. and Apex Mountain, which is uh, farther east. And, you know, they're a great little hill. I think they get like 500 inches of snow a year. They just get dumped on. So tie that together, fly into Seattle. You can hit Mission Ridge, White Pass, drive up to uh, Sasquatch, over to Apex, and then down to uh, Spokane and hit a couple resorts there and then fly home. I mean, there's all kinds of great loops that you can do now, and that's what we're trying to do is put together these strings of resorts that you can hit in these, uh, you know, three, four, five-day loops. Yeah, you have some really nice clusters going in the upper Rockies and Pacific Northwest, in the upper Midwest, and in the Northeast. Uh, One of your new partners is kind of uh, hanging out there on its own. That's China Peak in California. This is not too far from Mammoth as the crow flies, but but I put it into Google Maps and it's like a seven-hour drive. I, I think they're like 30 or 40 miles apart, um, which is one of those funny mountain things. Uh, but, you know, most when you think of California skiing, you think Mammoth or, or Tahoe or the areas right around L.A. Uh, tell us about China Peak. China Peak uh, is... You know, nobody knows about it. It's another it's another one of our hidden gems, but it's the eighth largest resort in California. And their base sits at 7,000 feet in uh, the Sierras, and uh, they serve the Central Valley. You know, they pull out of Fresno and Bakersfield and Modesto, I guess. But it, it's a great hill, and we're just really stoked to have them on the program. Um, eventually, we'd love to have a... You know, a line of resorts from Vancouver, B.C., all the way down to, uh, you know, Los Angeles uh, uh, area. And they're, again, they're another piece of the puzzle. And the owner is, uh, he's a hes a pioneer. Uh, he's an out-of-the-box thinker, Tim Cohey. And he's going to give it a shot. And we're, we're really excited about it. So you have some really strong additions this year. I want to end by talking about potential partners here. Starting with the Midwest, just because I think that's where the Indy Pass is the most complete. So with the three additions you made this year, plus what you already have in the region, it's really kind of a must-have, especially in the upper Midwest, where you can easily buy this and, and without too much effort, get 10, 12, 14 days in. Icon only has the Boyne Mountains in the region. Uh, Vales Mountain in the region are small urban feeders that have really no weekender appeal. So they've kind of seeded it to you. But where do you have room still to add in the Midwest? South of the Great Lakes states, you know, Iowa, Illinois. There's some pretty good resorts down there that uh, we'd love to talk to. I can't say who's in or who's out or, you know, who's thinking about it at this point, Stu, but uh, there's a lot of opportunity still in the Midwest despite the density that we, we already have. You know, I want to ask you specifically about Mount Bohemia in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And I know the Lutzen folks always get fired up about this. But in my opinion, that is, without comparison, the best ski area in the Midwest. And I don't think it's close. Uh, In fact, it's one of the most unique ski areas in the country. If it had another thousand feet of vertical, uh, it would basically be Alta. Have you talked to them? Is there any chance we would see Bohemia on the Indy Pass? Yes. Uh, no, there's not. Uh, I have talked to them, and uh, I agree. They're uh, they're an incredible mountain, and by all standards would be a prototypical indie resort. Uh, the problem is he sells season passes for $99. Right. And, you know, that's his model, right? Uh, everybody who even might go to Mount Bohemia buys a season pass, early season, 
And if he was on the Indy Pass, nobody would do that. They wouldn't have to. They'd buy an Indy Pass, and they could go to Mount Bohemia or not, and he'd lose all that revenue. So it'll never work, but... Uh, maybe there's a, a way we could have some kind of a, a special offer for Indy Pass holders to go up there and get a break on a day ticket or something. I think what that resort is doing is, is really cool, and it is super hard to get to, so I don't know if I'm going to make it up there myself anytime soon, but I'd love to ski there from what I've heard. Yeah, you, you buy yourself a $199 Indy Pass and a $99 Bohemia Pass in the upper Midwest, and you are set for the season. Uh, moving out to the east, uh, Epic and Icon are pretty strong out here. Uh, most of the biggest and most built-up mountains are spoken for, but there are some marquee names available, and I know you visited a lot of them when you were out here. Uh, you have Jay Peak, you have Mad River Glen, which we discussed earlier, uh, Smuggler's Notch, Waterville Valley, Bretton Woods, Whiteface, Gore. Uh, any of those mountains in particular or any states in particular where you're focused on adding them? We are... Uh, open to adding a handful of additional resorts in the Northeast. And when I say the Northeast, that's New England and New York. I think that's a proper geographical vernacular. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I typically throw in Jersey and uh, in the Poconos, but that's just my own New York City centrism. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. People <laughs> in uh, Boston, I hear, would take uh, uh, would take exception to that. But um, yep. Yeah, we're open to a few more partners. I mean, I'd like to say we could, you know, have everybody on the pass, but we can't. We've got to maintain a certain amount of density. We can't have too many. We can't have too few. And there are some gaps still that exist. And and we're talking to, you know, virtually everybody in the region. And hopefully, we'll be able to announce uh, something else before this season starts. But if not, you know, we're going to keep at it until we get there. And uh, Stu, you'll be the first one to know. <laughs> Well, if the Orta people are listening, they manage uh, Whiteface Gore and Bel Air. If you add those three, that's an automatic buy for anyone who lives in New York City or the environs, because those are three really great state-run mountains. Um, it, you know, one place where Epic and Icon have big gaps in the east that I think the Indy Pass could fill in really nicely is we have a lot of these sort of mid-sized, around 1,000 vertical foot ski areas. They're within two or three hours of major cities. Great day trip options, right? Because, you know, I'm in Brooklyn. I can't always get up to Vermont. If I have my daughter, I don't want to go that far for a day trip. You know, I'll, I'll go to these places like like Mountain Creeks right outside the city. And I actually have a pass there because the season pass is 200 bucks, right? Um, you have the Poconos. You have places like Blue Mountain or Montag or Elk Mountain, which is a little uh, north of the Poconos, actually. Uh, you have Platykill and Bel Air in the Catskills, uh, Jiminy Peak, Butternut in Wachusett, Massachusetts. So you, you have a few of these already, like Pat's Peak, Shawnee, and Mohawk. So you have some of these sort of mountains that are sort of, you know, you can easily hit them from the city. How much are you focused up on building up those sorts of feeder mountains? Uh, very much so. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've talked to every resort that you mentioned, you know, at, at some level or another. And uh, like I said, you know, we have day ski areas and then we have more destination focused resorts. And, and it's that, that mix that really gives the Indy Pass its, its value proposition. And we, we'd love to have all or most of those resorts that you mentioned. And we continue to put our message out there and hopefully uh, we'll be able to expand in those areas uh, sometime soon. So moving out to your neighborhood, uh, unsurprisingly, since this is where you're based, Indy Pass is really strong in the Pacific Northwest and the Northern Rockies. 
but there, there are some areas for growth in the West. I think the most glaring example is Colorado. Obviously, you know, dead epicenter of skiing in the United States. That's where Altera and Vail are based. They both have, you know, incredible offerings there. Uh, but you do have a lot of independents. You have Ski Cooper, Loveland, Monarch, Wolf Creek, uh, Rapo Basin, of course, is already on the uh, Icon and the Mountain Collective passes. Why is Colorado so hard to get a foothold in? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it is the the mecca, if you will, uh, for skiing, and there's probably more skiers per capita in Colorado than any place on the planet. Uh, well, maybe outside of Austria, but yeah. it, it's um, a couple things. I think you know we talked about the, the reciprocal agreements, and their reciprocal agreements in the Rockies are are really strong. They have really really great. Uh, programs. Some of these resorts have 30 partners that they have reciprocity with, and so they, you know, they're reluctant to do anything to upset that equilibrium. That's that's reason number one. Two, um, you know, ticket prices are are healthy there, and there's a huge demand. You know, Epic and Icon have have created some, admittedly, some uh, overcrowding issues in their backyard. And so a lot of people are gravitating towards these smaller resorts. And, you know, frankly, they don't need the marketing support like a lot of other parts of the country. I mean, they've they've got plenty of customers, basically. And the Indy Pass is essentially a marketing program. So I think it's those, those two reasons. Uh, but we continue to talk to all the resorts that you mentioned. I, I've skied about half of them, and I think they're they're great places. And hopefully uh, someday we'll be able to include Colorado on our list. So probably your biggest hole outside of Colorado as far as a skier zeitgeist is, is Tahoe. Um, obviously, Epic and Icon, both very strong there. Some of the best ski areas in the country are right there. Uh, but there are more than a dozen ski areas dotted around Lake Tahoe, including some pretty big ones that are unaffiliated as of this moment. So you have the likes of Sierra Tahoe, Mount Rose, Homewood, all great mountains. Uh, what do you have to do to tiptoe into that market? Uh, same thing, I think, as Colorado. Uh, some of the same um, considerations exist there. Uh, you know, ticket prices are high, demand is high. Uh, these these smaller resorts are really seeing a, a resurgence in that area because the, the big ones are are getting so crowded, and uh, there's just less less uh, need for them to you know go with a program like ours. Uh, having said that, you know we continue to talk to uh, the folks at Sierra Tahoe, to Mount Rose, to Homewood, to Diamond Peak, to Dodge Ridge, which is you know a little south of the Tahoe area. Uh, those are all mountains that we would uh, welcome to the program and think would be a, a great fit, and who I think we could uh, send some new customers. How about the LA ski areas, uh, Mount Baldy, Mountain High? Those are the two. Those are those are the two. <laughs> and well, you have Big Bear, but that's taken. No, they're taken. No, we've we've talked to uh, both uh, Baldy and Mountain High, and we'd love to have a little mini cluster down there in SoCal. I think it'd be great. So big potential in your home state of Oregon with Mount Hood Meadows and Timberline, both unaffiliated. Which they're both on Mount Hood, which always blows my mind that you have these two huge ski areas on the same mountain, but. Uh, things are different out there. Uh, any chance of uh, partnering with either of those or any other mountains in Oregon? Um, 
you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of weekend crowding issues on Mount Hood. Uh, Portland is a is a huge ski town, and you know there are actually five ski resorts on Mount Hood. Mount Bachelor is three hours uh, from here, which is you know just an incredible mountain. So it's a, it's a really healthy market, and Timberline is parked out nearly every weekend from Christmas until early March, and, and Meadows has some issues with crowding on the weekends, and they've gone to some dynamic pricing, which has helped. But uh, again, you know, when demand is high and, and competition is low, they're not as motivated to, to get on a program like ours. Um, I know all those guys, you know, I know all the people at, at all those resorts, you know, quite well. Uh, you know, Timberline and Mount Hood Ski Bowl are clients of ours on the marketing side, and certainly we continue to have discussions, but the economics are just different out here, and uh, we'll just have to see how it goes. How about the Southwest? Uh, you added Sunrise Park last year, which I thought was a really nice addition. Um, that that whole region is kind of dominated by Taos, but there's a bunch of really good ski areas out there that are probably uh, a lot better known regionally of places like Ski Santa Fe, Ski Apache, Angel Fire, and then of course, Arizona Snowball, which is just a huge ski area. Uh, any Any talks with any of them? Absolutely, uh, Stu. I mean, you know, we've talked to everybody. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I'm not shy about calling people um, because I think we can we can help them. And and uh, uh, we've you know we've at least sent emails or, or had conversations with all the all the resorts that you've mentioned today. And my hope is that uh, someday many of them will become Indy Indy Pass resorts, and we'll be able to have a network that stretches from North Carolina to British Columbia and from Maine to Los Angeles. So Indy Pass goes on sale September 1st, like as I said, for $199. 52 ski areas now. You said you'd like to get to 60 by September. Uh, can we expect more ski areas to be announced over the summer? Yes. I'm not exactly sure who, but we're in we're, we're in discussions with several who are interested, and I think at least a couple of them are going to sign up. You think 60 is your max? Yeah, I think we'll get to 60 this year just organically, um, just you know, by the pace that we're on. And uh, I think that we'll probably reach peak density uh, for the for the North American market at around 75 resorts. And you know, once once that's done, and you know, there'll be very little movement. I think as we move forward, we need to see three years worth of data. Um, you know, consumption behavior and redemption patterns and all that before we can really say what's a what's a healthy density. But that's my guess at this point. I could be high or low. All right. Well, can't wait to see who you add. Cannot thank you enough for your time today, Doug. I went way over, uh, but I've been waiting for this one for a long time. Really excited about what you're doing and can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you, Stu. It's been a pleasure. Don't miss your train there, Doug. Okay, see you later. <laughs> Take care. Bye. That's Doug Fish, president and founder of the Indy Pass. Lots of good stuff there. I always feel bad when I keep people longer than I booked them for. My goal really is to make the podcast less than an hour, but when there's so much to talk about, sometimes we keep going. And Doug was very generous in giving us a little extra time and a whole lot of insight into where the Indy Pass is headed. Thank you very much for that, Doug. So, what do you all think? Is the Indy Pass on your list? Are you happy with your Epic, with your Icon, with your Local? Let me know. 
what does your past setup look like? Thank you all for listening. If you want more of that kind of thing, subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter for free at skiing.substack.com. Stay safe out there. Stay healthy. I'm Stuart Winchester. I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.